Yeah, sure. No, thank you. Are you kidding? Okay, um, here we go. Um, so, so you're seeing that? 100%. Okay. And I have, I, I trimmed it way down. And then just so you know, I have. Oh, amazing. And I actually put in uh, three slides. Oh my God, you got Christopher. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Uh, That's in our barn. Yeah, exactly. And then finish and, here. And who's that piece by? That's not Christopher, is it? It is his, new, his newest piece. Yeah. Not this, the, the one on the right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So he made that for Objects USA 2020, the show that we have on present. That's and, right. The, I remember him talking about it and being in that show, being so pleased with that. Um, yeah. And he, I actually dropped him a line and he's going to be joining us uh, for the talk. So he'll be that's there. cool. Yeah. Um, that is really, really cool. He gets our emails. I'm really pleased. I, I, have you sent him the link? Yeah, I did. Yeah, cool. Okay, yeah. brilliant. Um, fantastic. Oh, that's really, really good. Oh, it's amazing. Would you do me a huge honor? And um, uh, I'd love to get a copy of your book. And, um, and um, I'd love to probably uh, speak to your supplier and we could get, get it. Um, supplied here with us which would be fantastic it's um, launched in the uk yeah I, it's exactly it, when is the publication date in the uk i should know that so we, should, we should just have that to our minds as well just so i can let people know um i think it's been released in april sometime it's in april isn't it i mean if it was okay with you what i would love to do is just to say look you know if anybody's interested you know drop us a line and we'll get you a copy um, yeah, yeah totally um and um hmm. That's really cool. Are you giving? I mean, this is in a way, it's, it's such a democratizing um, uh, template, this, isn't it? Uh, with Zoom, it's just yes. so good for you know bringing people together and a really focused period of time. I think it's phenomenal. But I you know, I have this regular, it's actually not on the website. Oh, I see it's flipping me over to the American site, that's why. Um, uh, but uh, I had a, you know, I have this regular, um, this regular review program, Design and Dialogue. And we yeah. had, um, oh, I can't find this. I'm just going to have to say April. <laughs> but okay. um, we'll go with that. Yeah. But um, the, uh, we had two designers on from Pentagram, Paula Cher and Michael Beirut, and they have such an incredible, you know, social media presence. Um, mm. And we actually had 450 people tune in for the interview. Oh my God. It's unbelievable. I mean, that's as many as we've ever had in the series, but still to be able to command that kind of attention just for free. It's, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. It's hour and listens. No pictures, no nothing. Yeah, really amazing. It's it, it, people, you know. It's so valuable with, with the, the information is so valuable, so fascinating. And okay, I mean, I think you know, for what it's worth, you know, this topic of um, kind of material and making is something which we're really working on. Um, and I'm just going to let people in now and let them settle. Yeah. So I think you know, if we took a step back and kind of went yes from the American angle, but this or the universal one, uh, you know, there's a big topic, you know, under the uh, bonnet of this. Mm. Um, um so i'm just going to let everybody come through um, that's a good good way of putting it because i'm quite committed to the idea that auto mechanics are cross people too not all mechanics are no, auto, auto mechanics are also cross people 
where we hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had um, such an interesting. I'm going to just um, disable the waiting room there. Just let everybody yeah, in. Um, and just very lightly ask if everybody could mute themselves as they, as they come in. Um, that would be really kind. And we'll just let everybody gather around us for our talk this evening. Um, and thank you all very, very much for dialing in and joining us uh, this evening. Um, for those who followed our program to date, you'll know that uh, last weekend, David Goodhart was talking about uh, the head, the heart and the hand. Um, and he was surmising really, I think very rightly, the rising significance and importance of the handmade and the significance of those people who are able to use it in a term that is generally called craft um, and craftsmanship. So it is with great pleasure, I think we're in a perfect position to take that conversation on a little further now um, with someone who has dedicated their life to this um, area, to this research. Um, and Glenn, thank you very much for uh, joining us this evening from America. This is an overseas conversation. Um, it's a really appropriate time, not least to which because um, two years ago, you were in Plymouth, we were talking about a show of uh, reverse um, craftsmanship, wasn't it? It was American craft coming back to the UK, uh, the sort of inverted uh, founding father's journey. Mm -hmm. um, and so for us now to be in a position to hear from you firsthand about a book which is not even out yet here in the UK um, and which I'm looking forward to seeing um, about the origins of craft and the foundation in, in America um, is a real privilege. Um, so then thank you very, very much for giving of your time this evening to share with us um, a bit about your book. Uh, for those who don't know Glenn, there isn't really a finer figure to steer you through um, the nuances of why craft is rightly part of the resurgence in the contemporary art genre. It's finding its shoulders side by side with the contemporary art because it's got things to say. And those significances are what we're going to explore in part uh, with Glenn directly with the book and I hope afterwards. So do feel free to bolster your minds with questions. There'll be plenty to come um, from what Glenn has to share with us. And um, thank you for joining us from wherever you are. Um, Glenn in particular, thank you. Um, and I suppose um, when I look at uh, um, the story as so far as I, I have it, I. I think you described it to me as the symbolism, really, of the founding of America. It's as symbolic as that. It's as important as that, isn't it, really? And so, uh, in a way, that foundation was simply, you know, learn a, learn a trade, learn a craft, um, mm -hmm. or die. And um, how, how did you sort of, I suppose, come to this? I wondered if you would uh, like to sort of phrase it from those people who are from this side of the country, of the, of the, of the globe um just to sort of think for a moment we have wonderful craftsmen in this country um many of whom from europe came to america and were part of it but it means something more in america doesn't it and it means something which refers back to where we are in our own country subsequently but um how does how do we how do we 
understand craft from the American perspective? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for welcoming to this great series and thanks everyone for tuning in. You know, it's interesting you put it that way because I hadn't thought of this previously, but of course I lived in the UK for eight years until 2013. Mm. And the idea for this book really started to form in my mind when I got back. And maybe in a funny way, this is an expatriate's return, this book, sort of looking at my home country as if through new eyes. Yes. And in particular, I would say um, that my experience is at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is why I was in London for eight yeah. years uh, as the head of research there, ultimately. You know, that experience of a materials-led, trans-historical, global account Hi. sort of through the sort of American craft into a different kind of relief for me. And so uh, it's very much informed by my time in London, interestingly enough. I guess what it says about America, if I were to put it very briefly, is mm. that America is a place that struggled to put its ideals into practice. That would be the best way I could put it. Mm -hmm. And craft has very, very often been both the means by which that struggle has occurred. In other words, a kind of striving for independence, autonomy, equality, respect, community, spirit. And it's also been the sort of territory in which a lot of those uh, struggles have been carried out, which I'll you know, get onto when we start looking at a few images. But it, it's, um, it's very striking to me how central craft is when you begin to think about it in that way. And how, on, another, on the other hand, how marginalized it's often been in the story of the country. So that's, that's really what I wanted to write about. I, 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 I think you've described that very well. It is a central um, philosophy. Um, has it always been that way? I mean, I, I suppose imagining the start point of people wanting uh, you know, coming to America, literally having to build build a nation with by hand, you know, with ads um, and and craftsmanship and. Um, Sometimes not even that well made, actually, quite frankly, but there to do a job, wasn't it? It was, you know, yeah. practicality and essential skills were what was needed, um, far beyond anything that we might call aesthetics, which come into play, uh, you know, consciously and subconsciously. Um, and funny enough, when you look at contemporary craft in America, you sometimes see some of that sort of unalloyed um, design or unalloyed sort of um, design coming to the fore again, um, which is, and sort of reference back in a way that you sort of have, you know, we're sort of delightfully, you know, artfully simple, I suppose, is a, is a, is a phrase that describes it. Um, but the quality or, or the sort of a means with a hand seems to run to the central of that, doesn't it? I think it seems to me at least. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, if we're going to take the story way back, then of course that means talking about indigenous culture, Native American mm -hmm. Um, and there you already see that our tendency to divide objects between the necessary and the aesthetic. Yep. That, that, does, that opposition doesn't really apply with much persuasive force to Native American culture. I mean, if it does to any culture, but you know, um, if you look at Native uh, production going back, not to the 17th century, but you know, well into previous millennia, there's a much longer story there than I could tell in my book. Um, yeah. What you see is that America 
is being built on the kind of destroyed ruins of a totally intact and successful craft culture. So a lot of the stories that I tell, I'll just touch on this briefly later, but um, I think it's important to say here at the outset that um, the space that's being made for the dominant settler white craft culture is very much at the expense of this other arguably more beautiful, more integrated, more spiritually resonant craft culture. So even before the story starts or as it's starting, you already have a deep tragedy on your hands to contend with. And that's, that's of course a very unique, well, not unique because it both happens all through the Americas, but it's a very different situation from what you have in Britain. Um, it's, that is, and it is true, and it's concurrent with growing awareness around the, around the world actually of the sort of the symbiotic nature, um, or you say, all these sort of cultural overlaps, not always uh, agreeably forged. Um, and, and it's interesting because then I suppose I fast forward into sort of the, man, the matter of facts of sort of American production and machine age and sort of almost dialing out any kind of aesthetic consideration, sort of just purely in the process of pursuit of either power or profit. Um, and, you know, if you could manufacture it cheaper and you know, less elegantly, then that was obviously the way because it was going to be cheaper to sell. And, um, and then here we are here in a sort of, I suppose, sort of setting sun of that kind of GDP narrative and looking for refocus, I suppose, or re, you know, reshaping values. And, a, and craftsmanship, again, seems to be ringing, you know, bringing its head up again and people looking and thinking, well, maybe there are kind of value structures in here that we've missed. And to your point, picking up on indigenous cultures narrative, and this isn't new in you know, per se, a way of exercise of research, but it's perhaps more prevalent now that it's carrying greater weight in um, in contemporary art circles and also in terms of the wider sort of environs and lifestyles. So it's a sort of interesting sort of, I suppose, recognition of a of 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 the past, or maybe a sort of shifting of values. I, I wondered. Um, you know, uh, whether, again, you know, whether craft has the story to tell us that. Um, well, for sure. I think, you know, just to return to um, one thing you said at the beginning of that question, which is about the machine. Mm. It might be worth saying that the machines themselves were made, invented, and then made and also repaired, et cetera, by craftspeople. So there's also an interesting wrinkle in the story um, in that, we tend to oppose the idea of craft to the idea of industry and to think of the industrial revolution rightly as a kind of wrecking ball that yeah. smashed the craft-based economy into smithereens and left it in fragments. So that, that's absolutely accurate. But we also have to remember that the craftspeople were the ones that built the wrecking ball. Yeah. And, and so that's one wrinkle. Another wrinkle, obviously, is that even if machine production is carried out in the spirit of brutal efficiency, it's certainly subject to um, post uh, hoc aestheticization. Just think mm -hmm. of Le Corbusier celebrating the grain silos of the Midwest, right? Which were not put up because they were, you know, they were not put up as secular cathedrals, but that's how we treated yeah. them. Yeah. So you have a lot of complexity in there as well. But in, in terms of the present state of affairs, um, I'm sort of on record as saying that I think we're going through a great craft revival in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that's not something that I said at the beginning of my career, but I definitely think it's true now. And I would put it up against the arts and crafts movement, the uh, last peak of yeah. was probably the counterculture of the late 1960s, you know, the dropout, tune in moments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was relevant then. But I think um, the great thing about the current craft revival and the energies that you're seeing, even during the period of the pandemic, by the way, and mm. I'm not just talking here about amateurs sewing their own masks, I'm talking about you know viable businesses. Um, it's a much more inclusive and diverse picture than you would have had in the arts and crafts movement, where you know diversity really took the form only of the appropriation of native crafts, really. Um, yeah. But it was otherwise very much a white middle class phenomenon, and that's not the case today. You know, you have a very, very uh, textured, brilliantly um, variegated fabric of craft production happening out there, and it's really inspiring to see. So in that way, I feel, you know, that I'm addressing a very vibrant and, and living concern not something that's purely historical yeah i think i i'm i'm wholeheartedly with you on on on, on that point um and it is interesting and maybe we should touch on it after your um presentation about you know the wider application of people enjoying craft particularly in lockdown it's one of the few things we actually can yeah. and do I, i've seen people here on these talks uh, i know listening avidly uh but also making at the same time um yeah. In these videos so i think you know uh the interest in the hand is something i'd like to talk to you about uh subsequently just in i suppose in a kind of contraposto to the you know rise and rise of of digital of which we have no criticism um but it's just interesting because it brings into focus the the value of actually what you can do with your hand as you rightly say uh it's what you do with the hammer uh that defines you as opposed to the hammer itself being the problem so yeah, yeah. um yeah um that's um fascinating well it's it's great to um god i don't know whether how you would like to steer it i'm i've got a thousand questions i'd like to ask you um maybe i could jump into some images just so people have something to hold on to um yeah while i do that i will say that um the great german theorist walter benjamin wrote a lovely essay called the storyteller where he talks about the fact that um that listening is perhaps best done while you're making something with your hands. And he talks about craft workshops and the oral cultures and craft workshops there. So if you are out there knitting as, as I'm speaking, I'm, I'm delighted. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, I only get as far as doodling when I should be making intelligent notes uh, to ask hearing <laughs> questions later on, but I, um, I can't help it. The hand is, is key. And, um, I know we're going to come on to, um, because I've just seen a question come up, uh, some of my favorite things, which is contemporary American craft and some of the names uh, yeah. really lead that area. Um, so I won't spoil the surprise, but just to let you know, uh, Christine, as you're asking, very much uh, front and center of my interest is in contemporary American craft. In fact, Glenn wrote a uh, brilliant introduction for a debut show for uh, one of its leading lights, of which we'll talk more on, I'm sure. Um, but, right moment, yeah. yeah. Um, well, shall I just crack through these images very quickly, Johnny, and then we can return to. Well, um, I absolutely. I love the. Um, uh, I love. I love this image very much. This is copy, I think, isn't it? Or part thereof. Yeah. Oh. So this is the cover of the book, and I just thought it would be worth showing you the entirety of the two images from the cover. 
Um, so I guess probably people in the UK are familiar with this image. I mean, here in America, this is so famous that it needs no introduction. It's John Singleton Copley's portrait of Paul Revere, who was of course a great revolutionary hero of the famous Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, the British are coming, no offense um, <laughs> to our listeners. Um, so that's one image from the cover. And then the other one is a quilt by a woman called Jessie Telfair, who mm-hmm. was very involved in the civil rights struggle and then made this quilt in 1983 looking back at that experience. Mm. The reason that I put them together on the cover was really to highlight, first of all, the idea of the craftsperson as a kind of radical figure or revolutionary figure. So the American Revolution, the Civil Rights Movement, um, and of course, something of the diversity of the materials that I was going to be covering in the book, silversmithing, textiles, and of course, many more. But also I wanted to, I suppose, flag the expansiveness of the sense of who is a craftsperson because, you know, Revere might very well conform to one's uh, mental image of what an American artisan looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. shirt sleeves, 18th century, um, working with his hands, tools on his workbench, et cetera. But of course, you know, it's not just long dead white men that deserve to be part of the story. It's also black women like Jesse Telfair it's mm-hmm. people all over the country. She was living in the deep South. Um, and uh, I think it's really important to think of the book in some ways as being the story of America told through the eyes of its craftspeople in a fully mm-hmm. diverse sense of that term, rather than thinking of it as maybe a more expected history of you know, the greatest hits of American decorative arts as you might see in a museum, for example. Um, We've already talked a little bit about the opposition between craft and industry. uh, And I noted the importance of artisans as drivers of the Industrial Revolution. But I think another thing that's maybe important to say about the particularity of the American story is that although the factory system was arguably invented in Britain, it really was in America that the rubber hit the road, if you will. So America that the scaling up um, and the, um, the kind of complete domination of the economy uh, was more fully realized. We often think about that as a British story, like in you know, Sheffield and Birmingham, Manchester, places like that. Mm. But um, over the course of the 19th century, it would really become America that led the way as far as those kinds of scaling up processes go. Absolutely. The British actually ended up calling the factory system the American system by the middle of the 19th century. So there's also a particularly fraught relationship between craft and industry in this country that's important to to know. Yeah, and competitive edge, wasn't it? It became a competition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one against the other. you know, obviously outright warfare in two instances, the revolution, the war of 1812, but uh, continuing economic conflict. And of course, the other story that needs to be included there is the story of slavery, because it's because of the Southern slave system, you have cotton first flooding the markets in Britain and then ultimately being processed by the Northern factories. Um, And and that's actually where that phrase that we decided to use for the title uh, comes from. It's Frederick Douglass, who you see there on the left in younger days. That's not the grizzled lion. Um, maybe more familiar pictures of him, but um, you know, uh, uh, closer to the period when he his, himself was an, an enslaved young man working on the docks of Baltimore as a ship's cocker. Yes. And I always like to point out to people that it's only because he had a trade that he was able to escape 
because it, it enabled him the modicum of freedom, in other words, freedom of movement, yeah. that didn't to affect that. Um, but he, he wrote, uh, just on the eve of the Civil War, he wrote an essay um, that said that Negroes, the word he would have used, uh, needed to learn trades or die. And what he was specifically talking about was the fact that a, a, a black man or woman, um, women, women, black women were very often involved, in, especially in textile-based crafts, uh, seamstresses, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you had a trade, you were not going to be sent into the fields. And of course, your likelihood of living a long mm. life in the fields um, was virtually zero. So it was a, literally a, a matter of life and death. Life and death. Yeah. Um, and then Booker T. Washington, who you see there on the right, yeah. of course, takes that on and um, implements this uh, policy in a way um, of uh, vocational education is probably what we'd call it now. So trades-based yeah. education yeah. for both young girls and young boys of African-American heritage. And here you see them in Hampton Institute um, where Washington had his first uh, sort of experience of this kind of system. He went on to found his own school at Tuskegee. And so you see here, you know, women involved in the processing of cotton and, you know, working with textiles, obviously staged photograph, maybe the not. So, but it's symbolic to show, if you like, that they're participating in the whole process through. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Literally building the school itself, as you can see on the right, there they are. And literally building the school, yeah. Yeah. So the, the debate here um, is a fascinating one. You know, it's, it's often framed in terms of Booker T. Washington against not Frederick Douglass, but a later very important black intellectual W.B. Du Bois, who right. ultimately came out quite strongly against this idea that uh, education for black Americans should be vocational and manual. Um, he himself was a very highly trained and extremely literate, um, well, beyond literate kind of genius level sociologist. Um, so he, he knew what it was to have that kind of humanities and social sciences education. And yep. he felt that it was not right to expect black, um, black people to be trained only manually because he thought it would essentially encourage the idea that they were an underclass. I was going to say, so, so yeah, that sort of slight pejorative suggestion of, you know, craftsmen being only good for so many people. Exactly. And again, sort of elevating the head, I suppose, in yeah, that. In that just, so, you know, that, that's a really great thing to focus on in a way because it's so difficult to work your way through the arguments. I mean, yeah. the, the context here, obviously, because we're thinking about the late 19th century, is that Du Bois is reacting to Washington precisely at the moment that crafts are becoming less economically viable. So yeah. there's also an economic aspect of the argument. But it, it, it's a really good way of maybe, um, well, let me put it this way. We're in our field of craft practice and study. I think mm -hmm. the tendency is really to push back against people who would raise the head over the hands and argue for intellectual yeah. um, over manual skill, for example. But when you read Du Bois saying that yeah. in the context of a of Jim Crow racist America, it really does give you pause because yeah. you have to grant that he has a very as a, as a point that actually you're raising a full ceiling here. As you know, so yeah, yeah, that's a really, as you say, it's 
it's not fraught without complexity. And, the, and these images, if everyone's honest, aren't entirely convincing, really, are they? I mean, they're, you know, yeah, they're aspirational rather than real. real. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, let me just show you um, this pair of images because it's very much on the same point. This is Elizabeth Keckley, who again, mm -hmm. um, not well known at all in Britain and, and actually not even that well known here in America, but one of the most amazing biographies of American history really. Uh, so her story very briefly is that she was born into enslavement in the South, made her way to the Midwest, uh, still um, being quote owned by a family and yeah. she was put to work as a seamstress and dressmaker and as you can see became extremely proficient and had her own kind of genius at this trade um, and became so successful at it that while she was making money for this family who laid claim to her um, she was also able to make some money for herself and ultimately essentially assemble a group of supporters and um, allies who mm -hmm. effectively bought her out of slavery. Then she made her way to Washington, D.C., and this is the amazing part. She ended up as Mary Todd Lincoln's personal dressmaker and actually living in the White House during the years of the Civil War. And just to top it off, she actually had also made dresses for the wives of Robert E. Lee, the general that led the South in the Civil War, yeah. Yeah. and also brought to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. So all those women were wearing her dresses right through the Civil War years. On which both is, sides, did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah. Although she, you know, they were her clients before the Civil War started. Of course, yeah, yeah. Had her dresses yeah. during the war, so that's wow. bending. <laughs> and um, and we actually, as you can see, we still have some of her dresses for Mary Todd Lincoln in the Smithsonian, so they survive. So that's a, an altogether that's remarkable and exceptional story uh, told to us in her own words in her autobiography, um, mm. which is mainly about her relationship with the Lincolns. Mm. quite controversial in its own day because it was a kind of you know personal view of the presidential family that was unprecedented so she was clearly you know had a sort of confidence and ability that is rare to find in any human um but you know even though she's totally exceptional i i always think of her as being in some ways emblematic of that what tr a trade can do what skill can yeah. do in a life and of course, with every kind of exceptional and aspirational narrative, there are all the other sort of, you know, the significance is as much in her achievement as it is in the, you know, the kind of struggle for everybody else who hasn't been able to, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, that's another special thing about America, that that, that narrative of the self-made mm. and, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and, in a way, the antipathy that this country has always had to social welfare systems and the idea of the government as a support structure that is also bound up with the story of craft because from Ben Franklin forward, we've had this ideology of self-help, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's that's another thing that should be noted as a big part of the American ideology of craft. Yeah, and a lot of those stories, which I, I won't distract, but you have those phraseologies, don't you? Can, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to make it for yourself and all the rest of it. There's a, it's kind of bound up in the sort of active narrative of making in terms of success, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so then, you know, just very briefly, and I wish we had more time to talk about this, but it's just worth noting that um, mm -hmm. the Native American story obviously continues right to the present and never gets anything less than upsetting. <laughs> you know, it's, mm. it's a very, very disturbing story because basically 
what you have through American history is a slow moving genocide. And so that's always happening in the background. And I'm really emphatic about that in the book, holding that very firmly in mind. Um, And the lack of reckoning that we've had in this country about that in contrast to let's say Germany with reference to its Holocaust or Australia with reference treatment of its indigenous population, which is maybe a more obvious comparison. You know, yeah. America's done so little in that direction. But again, craft is swept up into that story as well. A lot of kind of fictionalization. I mean, these two pictures are great examples yeah. of state, again, staged photos of craftspeople um, that sort of, you know, present the artisan in the sort of misty and romanticized tones of pictorial photography. So it's Nampeo on the left, the early Potter, and um, a, a man whose name has only come down to us as Slender Maker of Silver, rather beautiful name. Slender um, but maybe what's important to say is that these craftspeople and many others also were very creative and adaptive in meeting the circumstances in which they found themselves. So making objects like the concha belt would be a good example that he's got across his lap there on the right. Um, that's not a traditional native craft form. It's something that was developed especially for this kind of mixed uh, clientele of American military and Mexican military in the Southwest in the late 19th century. So the, the native population yeah. and its artisans are constantly innovating as a yeah. way of trying to make their way, navigate this yeah. situation of displacement and violence. And that's yeah. another very moving part of the nation's kind of craft fabric. They still fulfill within the criteria of learn a, tra- learn a trade or die, don't they, really? In essence. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, very much so. And, and of course, the, the greater irony, as I said, in relation to the arts and crafts movement is that the objects they're making are then treated as the kind of relics of this disappearing culture, when actually they're exactly the opposite. They're means of keeping the culture to some extent intact and economically sustainable. So it's completely back to front the way that the white population tends to view these people and their works. Um, so that's, that's another long story, but I'm going to jump ahead um, wow. just to get closer to the present day. So this is Rosie the Riveter um, mm-hmm. on the front. As you can see, the Riveter is actually labeled as her lunchbox that's labeled. Um, oh, look, yeah, they're Rosie the Riveter. That is. So this, this originally was a song uh, during, you know, a wartime patriotic song about women entering the factories. Um, and what happened was that Norman Rockwell made this painting for as one of his many illustrations for the front of um, you know Sunday magazines yeah. uh, and Saturday magazines Saturday Evening Post most famously. You see there she has her loafered foot on Mein Kampf. I mean it's absolutely filled with fascinating details. She's got a halo that oh. floats of her face shield. Yeah. Um, so what happened was that later on in the 1970s this ultra famous now ultra famous poster was sort of plucked out of the rubbish heap of history by feminists in the 1970s, mm-hmm. as we can do it poster. And it was somehow in the public imagination welded to this idea of Rosie the Riveter that had been famous during the war. But as you can see that in the poster, she's not riveting anything. Um, and in fact, she's based on a photograph of another woman who's also not riveting anything. So that poster was actually virtually unseen in the 1940s during the war. It was something that the feminists kind of propagated uh, 20 years later. Um, sorry, 30 years later, the 70s. Yeah. 
Um, but it, it's a fascinating story because what happened, what had happened in the meantime was that of course, women were very much discouraged for holding on to their industrialized trades jobs, which again are craft jobs like riveting in many cases. And they were effectively forced back into the home. And that's where you get this leave it to beaver cult of domesticity of the 1950s, which you sort mm. of think can afford dresses and yeah. you know, two-tone refrigerators of that period. That's um, in large part, almost like a public relations campaign to get women out of the workforce to make way obviously for returning GIs to take up their jobs again. And so you have a huge kind of clash of gender interests there. And the yeah. feminist appropriation of this particular image is very much um, about the sort of undoing of that process. So it's just another really good example of a kind of fraught story around identity, in this case, gender identity, that's um, taking place through the imagery of craft. And in this case, it's an industrial craft rather than you know a yieldy craft like pottery or weaving. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And you can just feel the different narratives that are driving behind them uh, in terms of the objectives uh, of what they're trying to achieve. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ralph making identity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yet, you know, what I always think is fascinating here is that right from Paul Revere forward, the craftsperson is being presented in this kind of heroic idealized way. Same mm. as Americans, you know, even the portrait of Elizabeth Keckley in some ways presenting her as this upright, self-respecting person. And that is seems to be always the case with the representation of past people is fundamentally respected. Um, mm. And I think that plays into what you mentioned earlier, Donnie, that the currency of craft in the contemporary art world now, and mm. I'm not sure I've actually ever made the argument quite this way um, in public, but I think for this setting, it's maybe very appropriate to say it this way. I mm. think the crisis of the contemporary art world is leading people to seize on craft almost um, like a mast in a storm, you know, because so much about contemporary art feels arbitrary, superficial, driven by money, and also dominated by the interests of a very narrow class of mostly male, very much mostly white elites. And when you bring craft into the equation, you get a couple of things. First of all, you get a kind of solidity like I always say, you can't spin craft, you know, it is what it is, and you can see it clearly. The object must give of itself and must be made properly, whatever yeah. the camp craft are in that case. Um, so you, you get a kind of, I don't know, a sort of reliance or, or um, fixedness that contemporary art often struggles with. And I think there's an emperor's new clothes thing uh, active in contemporary art often for a lot of people, yeah. the craft seems to assuage. And then the other thing you get is, of course, diversity of participation. So this is Martin Perrier, the great American sculptor who's African-American. And um, he's, again, kind of like Elizabeth Keckley, he's an exception in every way. You know, he's um, done the Venice Biennale Pavilion. You know, he's, he's one of our greatest living uh, cultural figures in any field, much less in contemporary art or sculpture. Yeah. But um, looking more broadly, we can say that diversity of uh, of or inclusion of participation is something that craft gives you because of women like Jesse Telfair or Southern quilt makers, let's say. Um, in fact, women more generally who are much more apt to be able to make a living in crafts than in sculpture or painting in the earlier parts of the 20th century, let's say. 
Um, so I, I think in so many ways, craft is almost like, it, it's almost like the answer to an equation. You know, what is what does contemporary art need? It needs to get over its diversity issues and it needs to find something to really hold on to that has some degree of um, truthfulness to it. And craft seems to provide both of those things. I think it's lovely to hear you say that, Glenn, certainly, you know, particularly someone with your expertise and knowledge, it's certainly um, a point that we would readily align and in fact drive towards. Um, yeah. Probably the crucial one there is this element of, you know, you touched on it obliquely, this idea of trust. You know, we trust our eyes, you know, so you can see things with your eyes and you trust the way something is made and how it's made and that's what you feel. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely in the contemporary art genre at the moment, a uh, layer upon layer of, of uh, I suppose duplicity or, trans or, or transience, which is unnerving in a time when we're looking for something on which to, um, as you say, sort of latch on to when the, you know when it's stormy. Um, and it is a, it is a, it is a valid point. I think um, equally, and Martin's work is such a good example of this, is that craft has really stepped up to provide within the context of its manner, if it's um, production narrative as well there's concept and there's meaning in the pieces where and this has always been and i would be fascinating everybody's view on where the sort of where you draw a division line i remember a really amazing uh influence on me um uh david linley who said look where you know there's a fissure between craft and art um you know um just beware and i think well that's an interesting area to explore because you know like someone says you know don't touch wet paint you always go there um yeah. and um i think it's in this intersection where the most interesting art is happening right now and i think so mm -hmm. see politically led and charged craft um i think is something that people are readily um seeing you know as, as yeah. shoulder to shoulder with with the you know that's great. yeah it's, you know like who presented with a fissure or let's say a canyon maybe mm. a good word. Yeah. yeah who presented with a geological feature like that doesn't want to hike down into it yeah right. absolutely <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's get the bottom of this <laughs> see what's going on yeah but you know i mean um i will often say too though that the idea of craft and art as two terrains that the idea of craft and art is two separate trains that do or don't overlap. That's not really the way that I imagine it, because I think of craft okay. more of the motive power behind an artwork. Yeah. I, what I tend to reject is the idea that some forms or um, indeed materials, which is even a sillier idea, are intrinsically more interesting than others, or intrinsically more have an intrinsically higher propensity to be fine art. Definitely. Yeah. So I, my take on it is that we should absolutely see a painting as a crafted work yeah. or worse crafted, but crafted. And we should absolutely see, you know, any object in the VMA as an artwork, you know, and think of it all always as all being relevant. Um, but just um, before I take the images down, I did want to say, you know, I think of the program Messens, just as you said, is exactly driving into this lane um, with a great degree of um, sort of convincing dexterity too. And um, I just wanted to close with one of the many artists that you've supported who's um, uh, very much coming from the same trajectory and exemplifying it. 
and that's Christopher Kurt. So I think might actually be listening in on the call. So so hi, Christopher. But here's yeah. a picture of him from a few years ago, and this is the ravishing uh, presentation of his work that you had at Messon's Wiltshire. It's it's so good. Yeah. So yeah. it's like you know an indoor constellation. Um, might be one way of describing it. And in fact, it, it's the title is something like um, the traveler does not know which way the north is, but knows the needle is. Knows the way the needle going, knows where the needle's pointing, absolutely. And yeah, to that point in such a lovely way to think about um, that sense of just feeling your way through instinctively to what things have got to say to you yeah. as objects. And um, this this really was a great show. And I, I, uh, I do doff my hat with that whose work I like. But you know, the, the great poetry of it is that essentially what he's doing here is thinking in terms of joinery. So each of mm. these, the, the sculptures are built around these moments of intersection, each of which are these very particular, um, you know, uh, moments of construction, which of course, technically or aesthetically, that's amazing enough. But if you think about conceptually, and understand them as almost models of moving through the world from one point of junction to the next. And then these, these kind of incredible moments of compression or in fact, compression and kind of radial explosion at the same time. Um, and this, this way of thinking that's simultaneously uh, very technically um, accomplished and also very metaphorically rich is really evident in this piece on the right here, which is one of Christopher's most recent works. This is actually in a show that I co-curated called Objects USA 2020. It's yeah. in uh, New York City, um, right now at Art Company Gallery. And this is just a, a comparison on the left. That's a medieval um, linen fold carving that's actually in the collection. Yeah. yeah, you can see it's session number there on the lower right. So it was acquired in 1863, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I love that. You put a marker on that. Remind me where I got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this idea of linen fold carving, you know, to some extent, it just reflects the natural or inherent uh, possibilities of chisel work, because what you're seeing is the chisel being used both as a gouging tool and also as a way of creating this kind of curvature at the ends. So it's a kind of natural thing for a woodworker to come up with. You see what I mean? Christopher could explain it a lot better than me. But boy, has he mastered this and sort of scaled it up and um, exploited its potential to create this gorgeous sculptural um, oh, shroudy um, yeah. piece. I know it's and it and really lovely because you're just jumping in between two visual metaphors or multiples of visual metaphors or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of weighted drapery. But, um, yeah, exactly. Just like classical drapery, let's say, or people's um, culture. But the, the thing that it's so important to say about this is that the, the project really came out of Christopher thinking about the way that, let's say, people in the Gothic era in the Middle Ages responded to the plague or other moments of intense crisis, of which there were many in the late yep. period. And he was thinking about what we're going through, the pandemic, the incredible disjunction and tragedy of the last year and a half. And thinking about this particular vocabulary as having this kind of transcendence and uplift and a sense of um, you know, materiality being transformed into something uh, spiritually reassuring or aspirational. And I feel like that instinct is so true, not only to this moment, but to the entire history of American craft really, that 
there's so often, even though the topic obviously is shot through with economics and you know politics and all the rest of it, at the end of the day, the objects almost lift out of those contexts and reassert the value of simply being human and how magical that is, how extraordinary we are as creatures, what we can do with our heads and hands, and the way that craft is able to find and reassert that inherent value over and over again, you know, from Paul Revere's teapot right to Christopher's armor here. I think that maybe goes some way to saying why I really wanted to write the book. You know, it's, it's because of people like Christopher and all the other people I've talked about living or dead and because of the objects that they make and wanting to do them some kind of justice. That's really, at the end of the day, that's why I felt like it was a book worth writing. So, and it's, yeah. it's a, well, it, and um, you're, you're right to do that because I think it is a, it is a passion of yours. I think it is also, if you like, a creative response. And, you know, you could keep within those metaphors and say that, you know, writing itself, which is no small art form, um, you know, does exactly that. It's about finding uh, meaning in, in our environment. And so to take all those objects and to contextualize them in a, in a profound and insightful way is, you know, is, is your craftsmanship. Um, and- um, Nice of you to say, thanks. No, it, it's, that is that is that is true. I've you know I've been um, enjoyed what you've written before, and I'm looking forward to I genuinely look forward to that. Um, the reading because it's lovely to just thread through as you have done um, through some of those um, and key figures, and kind of leave us on a, a really interesting way of thinking um, about the significance of making, which is the point I think probably as you've positioned us there with with Christopher's contemporary response to the last period of time and analogizing back to the um, plague and the use of linen baskets and also our kind of desire to show off skill through mm. that craftsmanship. Um, it's a sort of life-affirming exercise in some ways, I think, isn't it? Sort of, yeah. um, and so solutions, really, I, I is something of where I think um, craftsmanship has so much to offer because in this country, um, perhaps less in America, there is a real kind of disconnect with what on earth is the point of making things with your hands, really. Mm -hmm. what you think you can make things with your hands. You know, you can digitally cut it, CNC without it, um, the rest of you, and you can finish it. Um, and so I guess we're sort of questioning a little bit um, whether or not craft can offer us something by way of solutions to some of our, you know, Current problems. Um, and the point I was um, going to ask you really about and to get your view on is whether or not you saw any analogy between the process of making, which is a subconscious way of thinking, and problem solving in terms of the sort of physical um, solutions to, let's say, a mechanical problem or an evolution of a problem, like, say, like, um, you know, carbon sequestering or something like that. Um, and whether or not people who kind of got that in their sort of early education um, are the better for it. Um, is it, you know, can we quantify it? What we're trying to do really is quantify it as a um, something which has helped people to learn how to use their minds better, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and very well put as well. And I'm thinking now of, you know, the Crafts Council and the way that it constantly needs to justify itself to the government. Um, and often what you will see is that rightly and understandably, and I think often correctly as well, they are making those kinds of arguments, which I would describe as instrumental arguments. In other words, what is craft good for? Or, yeah. you know, if, let's say we're not going to actually um, return to a craft-based economy anytime soon, which seems likely, unless there's yeah. some dystopian collapse beyond yeah. anything we can conceive. Yeah. So given that that's the case, what is craft good for? And the definitions that um, or criteria that will often be offered is, well, first of all, it is a sector of the economy that has its own kind of validity, either yeah. in a luxury context or tourism context or um, art context, and that there's certainly a lot of value there, not compared obviously to mass production, but still, still a lot. Um, it's very viable as an amateur pursuit. That's another big sector of the economy. I often point out that the real money in American craft is in hobby shops. And, yeah. you know, Martha Stewart's publishing empire, it's not actually in, you know, art galleries in the studio craft movement, right? Um, yeah. That's billion dollars sitting over there in the hobby industry. Um, yeah. So there's that. And then there's also the sort of, you know, craft helps make good citizens argument, which is also probably got a lot to be said for it. But having said that, I always, I, my, my heart, sinks a little whenever I see any version of an instrumental argument being offered as the real reason we should care. And mm -hmm. maybe the way that I'll try to frame this is to say, my brother happens to be a historian of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And we, my twin brother, in fact. Yeah. Um, so we're very close. And we often talk about the fact that in some ways we're sort of talking about the same Another, thing. Yeah. yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's sort of like, well, why, why, like, why does anything matter? Yeah. What's the point of being alive? What's the meaning of life, right? Which is what philosophers say. But yeah, you yeah. could sort of say, well, actually making someone with your hand is a way of answering that question. It's existential. You know, it's to mark your presence in the world. Yep. Test yourself. Yeah. Grow yourself. Um, you know, complicate this with the specifics of materiality. Give something to someone else as well, isn't it? You know, in yeah, sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah impart some piece of yourself to someone you love or maybe just to the future right yeah. and I, ultimately i feel like subjecting that something that important to anything as sort of transient and sorted as economic viability is is unfair but on the other hand yeah. of course i'm very interested in economic arguments yeah. going on. I mean, that's me too i think the economic arguments has got to raise its game my take is that crafts already got that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> probably so <laughs> yeah uh and um you know it sold the meaning of life it's just waiting for economics to grow up so. yeah <laughs> and um no i really i like i like it and and, and um it's interesting i think because I think the more of us who are, if you like, makers in 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 any scale, I think it is hugely beneficial. Um, it puts a different perspective on on what, if you like, consumerism really means. Um, mm -hmm. When objects have more significance, um, and you know, as all of us know, as soon as you try to make something, you know how complicated it is. You certainly begin to value someone else's endeavors. Yeah. Uh, was, and that was sort of the point of my last book, not, not Craft American History, but my last book, Fewer Better Things. Yeah. 
basically the argument there is that if we all had a bit more material intelligence, it would just be a better world in so many ways, principally because we would have more appreciation for the things in our lives and therefore the people that made them. Yeah. And again, I don't know about everyone else, but certainly um, philosophies that I would readily uh, adhere to um, un under that heading um, as well. And it's, it is interesting. So I guess uh, it's slightly unfair of me to ask you this uh, because you've covered so much so brilliantly in terms of enlightening what uh, craftsmanship do, but I'm going to do it because it's important. Uh, anyhow, is our kind of eco balance, environmental balance uh, with the planet um, is, I think, you know, been, it's been brilliantly led actually now by some of the American endeavors and joined sort of globally. And I think there's a greater clarity of sort of some of the things that we need to resolve in terms of our carbon output and our footprint and um, complexity. Um, from your angle, can you see kind of solutions, applicable solutions and interests that um, come through from a craft-based um, approach? Is there, is there elements there that kind of you thought, oh gosh, that's interesting because that could have a real applicable um, result? Um, I, you don't have, I mean, I, I, I suppose one I'm thinking of is a guy who's out in um, Africa and he's building cubes of cardboard that um, he puts underneath a, and then evaporating seawater around them. Um, and they, and he's figured they become really quite beautiful constructions. They become um, caked in um, equivalent of what's on a crab, it's a shell. They're quite hard and you can build them. You can also sculpt them, but it's uh, sequestering um, carbon and it's also releasing water back into the um, ozone. Uh, and um, and really he'd have no rights to be there, but he happened to be a guy who was a craftsman in light and he was fiddling around with light and optics and looked at the way that it, it could work. And so um, that's how he landed there. So just, you know, I'm always interested in just hearing, you know, kind of what's on people's mind. I mean, you, um, Britain and, and the chat, you know, talk from where you are now, huge amount of making process. So I don't know, I just thought I'd throw it in there and see whether you- uh... Yeah, no, it's such an important question in a way that's the most important question. Mm. And it, you know, part of me thinks, well, crash has to be part of the answer here. And, you know, mm. Greta Thunberg took up knitting recently, I understand. So maybe that yeah. tells us what we need to know, but <laughs> yeah. she usually does. But, um, I, I, I would wanna maybe voice a little skepticism here because I think the reality of climate change is that it's such a massive problem that it requires massive solutions. And craft yeah. has never been great at that. In fact, quite the contrary. Yeah. It's been the kind of alternative to the massive. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my, the, the way I often put it is to say, if you're looking at, let's say the carbon footprint of a plate, a ceramic plate, yeah. And you minimize that carbon footprint. Well, where do you want it made? You sure don't want it made in a country pottery in Vermont or Wiltshire. Mm. You mm. want it made in a huge factory, probably these days in China, mm. with extremely large economies of scale and efficiencies in, ter in terms also of energy and resource exploitation and distribution systems. So that's a little bit of a problem for the craft led yeah. ecology warriors. Uh, yeah. Because there's just a you know craft is inefficient in every respect, and it's I mean, one of the. I think you're, 
really right to dodge that. It is a bear trap. That absolutely right, and there's no luddest argument. Uh, I'm 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 pro technology and I'm pro you say large yeah, scale solutions. Yeah, you have. You have to so you know, I think probably if craft does have a role to play, it's sort of in the way that it played an important role in the industrial revolution. In other words, it's it's within the scientific and technological information mm. centers. Um, it's through prototyping and through other kind of cutting edge processes that artisans are going to be making their contributions and are making their contributions. Absolutely. And I will, I will tell you, wind turbines did not come from nowhere. They had to be built, invented and built, and most of that was done by craftspeople. So yeah. wherever you have innovation, you always have craftspeople first. Yeah, absolutely, because they're, 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 they're the makers. Um, and it's that lovely phrase of taking pride in your work, isn't it? And you know that, right? It's a aesthetic response. Uh, people always ask me, well, you know, what is it makes that a good object or you know, why is that a good painting? And it is an emotive response to a series of kind of balanced aesthetics, finely tuned, which your mind is reading. And it's the same thing if you were a you know, manufacturer, um, you know, you craftsman, you're going to see those things at work in the same um, process and element you're working in, isn't it? Absolutely. And so we kind of probably need to fall in love a bit more with some of the people who are doing that sort of work and um, go back to Washington, probably be more confident in saying this is a good thing for the future. It's okay yeah. to make. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, Obama had a whole sort of maker movement. Mm, he did, you're right, yeah. That was probably inspired by, wasn't it? Yeah, so now that Biden's in, hopefully that'll be coming back, that energy. Oh, it's brilliant. And and um, I'll pick up one question and feel free if you want to um, uh, come come in, throw down on and, and join in the conversation. Uh, um, Christine, thank you for your uh, comment. Um, and I'll just read your question out if I may. I think that will be the best way to ask Glenn um, his view is that so Christine is is questioning where craft um, in the craft renaissance uh, genres are more developed, some genres are more developed, leading leading the charge. Is it sculpture, homewares, furniture, textiles? Okay, so in assuming the craft renaissance, which I think we we broadly agree, we, we agree on, um, what's sort of leading, what's leading the way, um, leading the charge? That's an interesting one. Um, um, well, I think it's different in different sectors. So I think in terms of gallery, work and particularly art, yeah. art fair presentation, that sort of thing, it's unquestionably ceramics. I mean, there's so much activity and energy there. It's really striking, you know, 10 years ago, you could scarcely find a ceramic at an art fair like Freeze, and now you can't swing a stick without hitting one, and of course you shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> on the ground. Um, but, you know, if you step into a broader economy, um, it's really hard to almost pin down what a leading medium would be because I think the whole point of it is that you have people carving out their own niches. You know, I wrote something, it's actually online if people are interested, I wrote an article for Smithsonian Magazine, which I thought of as a kind of extra chapter of the book in some ways because it really looks at the current craft renaissance and the way that vocational educators are participating in it the way that entrepreneurs with you know entirely Instagram-based selling strategies are participating in it. And mm. it's just so various. I mean, it's everything from, you know, Johans Lacour, who's a fellow who used to be imprisoned, who set up a handmade sneaker business when he got out, to um, you know, company um, 
like, uh, well, a great example would be the pretentious beer company, which is making handmade glasses. Yeah. But, you know, they're in Knoxville and they're making handmade beer glasses to sort of go with the handmade IPA that they're also making, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's it's so regionally specific. It's so specific to different fields. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the whole key is that it seems like anybody can make it work if they have the right combination of hand skill and business savvy because the platforms for finding an audience are so so readily available. You know, all those gatekeeping functions have just fallen away. I, 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 it is interesting, and it's much more leveling. And I think particularly in America, it's so non-denominational in that way. Um, yeah. You know, the different art forms. There are definitely, if you like, um, which you touched on earlier, sort of, you know, perceived hierarchies, um, yeah. which, are, which are shifting. Um, I think, you know, for so, us- so I'm just gonna tell a quick story, which is that when I was at the VNA, we did a show about British quilts. Oh. And I remember the head of marketing initially expressing some doubt as to whether we'd get a great audience for it. And he said, you know, he said, it's so niche, but then he said, but you know what? It might be a blockbuster size niche. Yeah. And then sure enough, yeah. I think it almost broke records that show, Supercharged British Quilt Show. And I was thinking, you know, that is the story of Kraft's 21st century success. It's a series of blockbuster size niches. It is absolutely right. And it's lovely because it still feels niche, like it still feels like it's yours to discover, which is important. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yet it's something which we can all readily track onto and feel a sense of commonality, um, which is really interesting as well. And, and maybe because you say, particularly quilting or textile is a, such a non-confrontational material. Um, it's less loaded, you know, mm. uh, it feels like that. I don't know, guys. We've raced through an hour, um, and, and uh, I'm, I'm conscious of all your, your evenings. And um, I would, I'd, I'd love to stay on and, and chat, chat with you. Um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, Glenn, Glenn's insights and talks. I, I really have, uh, obviously, um, for good reason because you read it so elegantly. You really know how to set out, if you like, the landscape. Um, navigate through difficult parts, understand difficult parts, I think it's, um, and also to describe the value of, of craft. And, you know, you're a big part of why its resurgence is uh, there. And it's not, I don't think any coincidence, you're up that particular part of England where, of um, America, sorry, where it's really so strong as well. So um, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, you Chris the road and Judy Fack, who just showed with us when we started and. And it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing space. I would encourage anybody uh, when you can travel to go and see it. And uh, in the meantime, um, obviously it uh, goes without saying, and I mean it with sincerity, there's a book that needs to be bought uh, when we can. So um, Ben, thank you very much. Really special uh, hour there. Um, and hope to see you soon. Yes, likewise. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thank you guys. And thank you all very much for tuning in. I was a lovely evening. It's really kind. Um, take care. Bye bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.